Hello and welcome to series two of Kvikminderpod, an Icelandic cinema podcast. Back after a little break, I'm Rob Watts and as ever, I'm joined by Ellie Cawthorn to chat about 21st century Icelandic film. Thanks for returning with us as we travel around the country uncovering stories and characters unlike any you may have seen elsewhere on screen. Before we begin, don't forget to follow us on social media where we're at Kvikminderpod on both Twitter and Instagram. That's K-V-I-K. M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D, and subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Episode 1 takes us from Reykjavik and out into the wilds of the stunning Icelandic countryside, where barely a sound can be heard, except for the bleating of sheep, the buzzing of overhead electricity cables, oh, and the umpa band following our hero as she commits acts of sabotage. That's right, this week, to kick things off, we're going funny political, with Benedict Erlingson's 2018 eco-comedy drama, Kona Fair Eastreith, better known outside of Iceland as Woman at War. We're back, and so is Ellie. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, yeah. It's lovely to see your face in person for I a know. change. This is unprecedented. First film back for series two, one that we discussed at the end of last series, which I think you described as something like a woman going to war against the telegraph pole or something didn't you uh well now having watched the film quite accurate is all i'll say i didn't deny it it's slightly obviously slightly more than that but yeah woman at war Mm. and a great one to start with the season with i think i think this might dare i say it possibly be my favorite film that we've watched so far. Oh my you God. didn't know I was going to say that, did you? I did you? not know you were going to say that. Fantastic. I thought I'd keep a spoiler back and um, launch it on you there. Yeah, I think it might be. So why is that? Because I thought it was quite upbeat, sp- mm. sprightly in tone. Yeah. If that's a weird way um, to put it. But with a real message and a real heart as well. And quite a simple narrative, really. Mm. But really beautifully shot and beautifully put together. Completely. Considering how much of the first series films that we discussed were bleak, were dark, were sort of wet and snowy and grey, this is like the antithesis of that. It's bright, Reykjavik looks stunning. It's all set sort of in the summertime, I assume. And what's weird is that actually, if you think of the subject matter, this is one of the darkest ones yet, essentially about global apocalypse and the climate crisis but it does a really good kind of tightrope walk in keeping it very entertaining and accessible throughout it doesn't the doom and gloom that is in the background is very lightly touched upon completely it's it's sort of it's that dark comedy that we've discussed but actually that is literally just the jumping off point and then the way it's shot the way the music is used the performances everything about it is much more fun and funny yeah. rather than sitting there thinking yep i think that's that's funny but i can't laugh out loud because yeah. it's just too dark whereas there are moments of this that are just lovely and sweet and yeah laugh out loud and very poignant very poignant too it does it does that thing very well of tra- treading the line between sort of tragedy and comedy quite well uh, and no spoilers but it's a bit more upbeat at the end perhaps oh We can talk about this later because I might disagree. Controversial. Yeah. (sighs) Okay, well, Woman at War, Kona Ferry Streeth, and I will just do a quick synopsis as usual. So, 
Hatler is a single, 50-year-old choir teacher with a hidden identity. Her mountain woman persona is an eco-terrorist, or rather eco-warrior. She'd be keen to not be described as a terrorist. Persistently sabotaging power lines in order to shut down an aluminium smelter, she runs around the Icelandic countryside like a true action hero, avoiding helicopters and drones in an heroic effort to do something about climate change and her country's role in it. But just as she plans her biggest act of sabotage yet, she receives news that might make her think twice. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> do you know what? You've addressed one of my biggest questions already, which is, oh. should we call her an eco-warrior or should we call her an eco-terrorist? Well, let's get stuck in. She describes herself as someone who's sabotaging and not causing violence. So therefore, not a terrorist? Yeah, I think that's fair. And... I mean, when, when we kind of get an insight into her motivations, we see like her war room, as it were, in her flat. Mm. Then all her pictures of, are of Gandhi, of Nelson Mandela. <laughs> you know, they're not of the IRA, are they? She's definitely, not quite. She's definitely a hero here, isn't she? So I think, yeah. eco, let's go with eco-warrior, probably. Eco-warrior, fair. And she's such a amazing, striking presence, really draws you in with a great character, really well drawn, multiple sides to her personality and, and a great sort of leader, even though she works alone. Played by Haldora Gehardstottir, who apparently is a famous theatre actress and she's appeared in lots and lots of films too, but we've not seen her yet. No. So this is, this is her first appearance on the podcast. Oh, well, her debut, how lucky for her. I know. So what did you think of her? I thought she was absolutely brilliant. As always, I think... I mean, I don't know what's in the water in Iceland, but there's something about the performances being so naturalistic. I thought she had like a real badass strength, a kind of mm. core, um, a core of steel, didn't she? So we saw her doing yoga and kind of tai chi, tai chi yeah. that turned into martial arts type of stuff, but also this very calm exterior. Like you say, I think there were there was a, it was a great performance for showing the different sides of her, this kind of steely dogged determination to bring down the threats to the environment but also the there was obviously the softer side as well which we saw with the kind of adoption storyline yes which was the moment that i described just before sorry i ruined it that's fine um but the film begins and so the sort of the first 50 minutes show us everything we need to know about the film pretty much and you talk about hatler's being so strong in many different ways, one of which is completely physical. The amount of crap she goes through to achieve her goals is just insane. Like some sort of Mission Impossible style Tom Cruise performance at times. And this is again where I've kind of come to love Icelandic cinema over the course of obviously learning about it in this podcast, is that I can't think of in British or Hollywood cinema that we would have a... 50-year-old female lead who is a total badass but also isn't some kind of like Lara Croft bikini wearing um, babe. She's She's just a a normal woman or she looks like a normal woman and that's so refreshing to see and I think until until I saw it here I didn't realise how rarely you do see that character on screen. It's, it's, It's fascinating because yeah like you said you've got this one aspect of her character which you don't see. But because she's female, it also means that you get this other side to do with the adoption, the mother in her. So she's caring for the world, but she's almost forgotten that she wanted to care for 
a child. She wanted to have a family. And then you slowly see, not even slowly, pretty much straight away see her thinking and coming to terms with the fact that she could be a mother. And it's a much softer side to her. I think that they both balance out really well. You've got this strong physical presence. But at times, and talking to her sister, Alsa, she feels like she perhaps can't do it alone. Mm. And Alsa certainly tells her that, you know, you can definitely, you've got this. Which is weird because that's part of the same impulse, really. The impulse to like love the love a child and bring a child up yeah. in the world um, and help a child who, in this case, you know, has lived through war and has nothing is the same impulse as like helping the next generation by saving the planet. But they're they're here to quite kind of contrasting things in the mm. way that she's approaching them. Yeah, totally. back to that opening scene we literally start the film with a bow and arrow uh fired by hackler over the electricity cables at the top of a telegraph pole a pylon whatever they're called and the result is as she drags a steel cable across the two of them it cuts the power to an aluminium smelter factory thing and it sort of explodes and She's achieved her job. She shut down the plant for oh, what clearly doesn't happen for very long. But she's achieved her goal of causing panic for both the heavy industry company, Rio Tinto, I think is the one that they talk about in the film, and also the government because, you know, heavy industry. I did a, did a bit of research and like aluminium smelting and all of that, it's about 30% of the country's exports. So, of course, the government are going to be super worried if that gets knocked out and they can't produce aluminium anymore. Then what do they do? I love the Rob Does Research part of the podcast. (laughs) This reminds me of, do you know that um, however much percentage of Reykjavik's roofs are made out of tin? (laughs) Um, From series one, everybody. Go back and listen. Throwback. um, So my my only concern at this point was I thought, does this power plant really get all its power from three overhead cables? Because that is not very well thought out. Surely you'd have some underground cables. Anyway, I don't well, want to... I mean, I don't know much about electricity, but I imagine what she's done is short circuit something. Okay. And it's created a chain reaction. I'll allow which it. Which shut down the plant. I'll allow it because it was, you know, dramatic. And if we'd seen a kind of drilling into an underground cable, it would have been much more boring. So of course. I get it for the point. But yeah, like you say, it, 
it sets the tone, doesn't it, really, for the whole thing. And there is quite, like, a surprising amount of action in this film. And it starts straight away. Because mm. Hattler is there, she's achieved her goal, she's packing up, ready to sort of trek. Because she's in the middle of the countryside at this point, like, miles from nowhere. Miles from nowhere? And miles from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so she's got to get back home without being spotted because this isn't the first time she's done something like this. Uh, and lo and behold, a helicopter is looking for her. The police, Lugreglan, they're searching for her. So she goes on the run and she's like scaling cliffs and running yeah. across the most mountainous, rocky terrain. And it's just like... It's you, really badass. It's badass. And you, like you say, you never see that, do you? No. Um, the one moment in that uh, escape, I think it's in the opening sequence, mm. where she like hides under the tuft oh, of earth and the helicopter passes over her. Did you also think of, it was like an exact mirror to me, of when um, Frodo and the Hobbits are hiding from the ring wraiths in Fellowship of the Ring? Yeah, completely. It's, it's that, that sort moment, of thing. isn't yeah, yeah. it? And they hide and wait for it to pass over them. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I think it's a fairly common trope. trope and sort of shot but what's perfect about it in this case is that she's trying to protect the land that she loves Mm. and she's actually using it to her advantage i love that the natural landscape helps her along the way throughout the entire film along her journey Mm -hmm. but starting right at the beginning she just sort of jumps right under that sort of break in the earth under the bank and it looks it's amazing the way they shot all of it like so many long takes Mm. that you you can tell she's doing it like i know Tom Cruise does his crazy shit. But, you know, what, what, yeah, what Hattler does here is, is pretty remarkable. And I think one of the moments that really stood out to me that we get in that opening sequence and then we get again towards the end of the film is where she, she like essentially lies down with her face on the ground, like the moss, mm. and breathes it in. Yeah. And it like re-energizes her and it's like this connection with the earth that is such a moment of being like, this is what it's all about. This is why she's doing it, because she loves nature so Mm -hmm. much. And I thought that those moments were really perfectly observed, really. But what the opening sequence also does with regard to the landscape is you've got these huge wide shots where Hackler is basically just a little ant in the middle and all you can see is mountains and heath and lava fields and things. And it's like, right, for us on this podcast, we've not seen a lot of that. Mm. Basically, series one was us saying, you know what people think about Iceland? Well, it's not shown in the cinema, but here we are. It's central to the story and it's shown in all its glory it looks absolutely magnificent and she so she's walking through this huge vast terrain and then later on we get the glacier and we get the hot springs and we'll come to those gorgeous yeah it's absolutely beautiful Uh, and then the other thing we get is she she keeps walking and walking and then suddenly there's an umpa band playing in the background Mm -hmm. which is a very very sort of central device to the film yeah How did you find that? So at first I found it slightly off-putting and I was like, oh, I don't really understand what this umpar band is is doing. Mm. But as it went on, I kind of became 
increasingly sympathetic towards it. I enjoyed it more and more. To me, it felt very theatrical. So yeah. I've seen a lot of kind of plays where the band is are kind of brought in as characters as a way like, like a sort of greek chorus or something yeah exactly it's exactly that isn't it it's the greek chorus and i think that as we went through and you realize that that's what was going on here that they were the chorus that really aided it i mean it, it's an incredibly kind of simple device isn't it to be like now is a happy moment now is a poignant moment mm. now is a tense moment but i do think it was executed well and it helped give this sense of like like you say, the Greek chorus, that it was almost like a fable, like yeah. of this, the the David and Goliath story, mm-hmm. her being the David in this situation. I think it gave it like a, a sense of it being like a bigger story than just this individual thing. It is a very individual story, but it, yeah, it plays to the kind of universal ideas mm-hmm. of the world's going to end if we're not careful. I feel like I should say as well that even if at first I was like, oh, I'm unsure about this device, but I did come to really enjoy it. The music I loved from the start. Mm. I thought the music was fantastic. And um, maybe we can talk about the Ukrainian polyphonic singers as well. Mm-hmm. Cause, um... Yeah, go on. <laughs> they come in a bit later, don't they? Yeah, so they're kind of brought in, aren't they, to to kind of represent Nika, the, the child that she's thinking of adopting and, and kind of be that angle of the story mm-hmm. um so i mean it's quite explicitly done like they sing songs that translate as like mother save me so they one of their songs was like it was about like mother um i need your help kind okay. of thing so very on the nose very yeah. on the nose but it was a nice reminder to like so often in you know drama you have to have somebody say oh, I'm just thinking about the girl I was going to adopt and it's really playing on my mind mm. in order to communicate that. Whereas it was a way of saying, she's thinking about this, it's always on her mind without having to really ham-fistedly show Yeah, it. I think that's what the music's doing all along. It's reflecting what she's thinking completely. Mm. So you, so she'll she'll be thinking, right, is it ready? Is it time to, uh, to do this last thing? And she, because what's interesting is that she interacts with the band sometimes as well. So just before she does her last attempt to, you know, take down the pylon, she nods to the drummer and then he kicks in and she's off. And, you know, I like the idea that maybe they might be there. Probably not. They might be a figment of her imagination or they might just be, like you say, just a device for us to to give us a nod to what's going to happen and what we maybe should be feeling. Yeah, because I saw them more as a kind of independent body than necessarily her, just her internal monologue, as it were. Because I think at points they they kind of had their own agenda, as it were, or, you know, like when they were retweeting things. Or or sometimes it felt like they were preempting stuff that she didn't know yet, for example. Maybe. I might be misremembering that. But that that. might just be her thinking ahead. Yeah, possibly. I, I don't know. But I do love that they got a band on top of Hotel Borg. <laughs> well, I mean, what? What?
when they get first introduced, it reminded me so much of, there's a scene in Blazing Saddles, the Mel Brooks comedy, where <laughs> there's one cowboy riding through the desert and he comes and the music kicks in and it's um i can't remember who it is but there's a there's a jazz orchestra playing and it's like that's his music coming through the desert and then they just appear next to him and he (laughs) acknowledges them and he rides off and it's just like a gag it's just Mm. like yep non-diegetic diegetic music etc but that's literally what happens at the very start of the film and then obviously we learn what they're there for and that they aren't just a gag it was kind of unnecessary, but that didn't mean that doesn't mean that it didn't add something. I thought it was quite good kind of like tone policing. That's a weird way of phrasing it, but as in like that what could have been a lot more somber, it helped lighten that and kind of make it a bit offbeat and off the wall as it were. Yeah, it, it's one of the devices used to kind of bring you away from the somberness of the actual like reality reality of what could happen if if Iceland uh, continues to pump CO2 mm. into the earth's atmosphere mm. um, another fact on the whole heavy heavy industry thing so obviously the aluminium industry is really important to Iceland it obviously provides lots of jobs in a country where perhaps sheep farming is on the decline so people are going to need other jobs but it's obviously polluting the environment not just in I think it's something like 1.6 million tonnes of carbon dioxide a year, which is just a huge percentage, I think 30% of the country's like total CO2 emissions, which is just, mm. that's bonkers. I know it's a small it's a small country, so that's not that much of a surprise, but 30% is just mad. But also, you can see that plant on your way from Keflavik Airport into Reykjavik. So that plant is a, re- so that's a real plant. It's a real smelting plant. It's a, I wonder how they felt about it's this It's the film. real Rio Tinto plant, yeah. So I haven't seen a reaction from the company, but I can't, I can't have been happy about it, I'm sure. No. Um, I think it's a big deal because people, don't, people didn't want it. It's there. It's been there for like 50 years or something, maybe longer. But yeah, it, it supplies jobs. I think it did quite a good job of... I mean, its message was incredibly clear, wasn't it? Mm. Um, but it didn't feel like um, polemical or it was like ramming this message down your throat. And I think people... I mean, there's been a lot of studies that show how people find stuff about the climate crisis really hard to engage with mm. or really depressing. I mean, everybody knows this. Like, it's just sad to see you don't want to hear how many things have been made extinct you don't want to hear how everything is going to part but this actually so i was like oh god is this gonna be really stressful this film but we (laughs) but weirdly it wasn't like its message was clear but it never felt it never felt over egged and i think also that that idea you know there were there's a lot of jobs supplied by that it at least gave voice to alternate opinions. So, like, um, when you have the scene in the locker room, the changing room, yes, in the, the swimming, swimming pool. pool. With Magnea's mum from Let Me Fall. Yeah, yeah, it was like, oh, very short little cameo from her, mm. but nice to see her again. But anyway, they're saying, you know, they get into an argument about it, don't they? And, and somebody's saying, oh, well, it supplies loads of jobs. And I feel like at least those critiques... They were given a like a fair airing at least, which it didn't really have to do. No, totally. It's good to see the normal member of the public's kind of opinion. Also, her sister's opinion. She's a practicing yogi and meditator. So that scene in the swimming pool in the locker room, you get 
you know, sort of three different opinions. And it's really, it's really interesting because Hatler really does believe what she's doing is right. And like you said, it's all well-rounded. You get that scene where she's on her bike, cycling past all the, yeah. the houses and the it's TV screens. And they're all saying, you know, this is terrible. It's sort of, yeah, it's terrorism. What will the country do without it? And almost like to the point of people like just making stuff up, like fake news. Like, I can't remember what the actual quotes are, but she's like getting scared by this. Mm. And you can you can see why the lady at the pool is worried, because if she's just watching, all she knows is the news. And all she knows from the news is that the prime minister is like, this is really bad for everyone, etc., etc. I think also it raises that that debate is an interesting one as well because it's about like personal responsibility almost. Mm. That like, can one person change something by essentially like waging a war? And it's a, it's about like, um, I guess it's about kind of like guerrilla tactics or terrorist tactics, whether you can by fear do good as well. They do have that debate, don't they? Which mm-hmm. I know is like a classic one for our time of it's like the suffragettes or whatever of whether whether taking drastic destructive actions are worth it for in theory a longer prize mm-hmm. as it were yeah well i read well, i watched an interview with the director benedict erlingson and he was saying how i mean it's not insignificant that she has mahatma gandhi and nelson mandela on the wall and she wears mm-hmm. the nelson mandela mask mm-hmm. at one point because they were both involved in tactics for apartheid and for colonialism. They both did the same thing, if not direct action, no violence, but rather targeting sort of more, more like sabotage, that kind of thing, mm. uh, which is much more peaceful than, I mean, I don't know what she, what Hitler could have done on her own that mm. would have been violent. I mean, she, still, she does steal Semtex. Yeah. So she could have done a number of things with that. There I was quite worried. <laughs> she is ingenious as well. Like the whole um, garden centre flower ruse oh, was very enjoyable. The surprise for the cousin. Yeah, yeah. Who we haven't mentioned yet, actually. No, we've got another big old sad farmer in this film, which does seem to be a recurring trope. Yeah. I mean, not I guess not uncommon in the Icelandic countryside. He clearly owns a lot of land. Mm. Um. But Hatler meets him, Sveinbjorn, at the start of the film after that long chase sequence with the helicopter. And he, she sort of makes him her accomplice. Uh, I think he's a willing accomplice. Sure. He doesn't have a choice when she just turns up on his doorstep, though. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting little exchange. Almost a thing that kind of ties in most with what we've seen previously in that she says, hey, I've just committed the sabotage. Mm-hmm. Help me out. And his first question is, like, who are your people? Like, who's your family? Which is very reminiscent of um, the other films we've seen and the kind of emphasis on this small community and everybody knowing each other. Exactly. And the old ways die hard, which is interesting because she's kind of fighting a very modern battle, but his reasons for signing up are not anything to do with protecting the environment. It's just about, oh, well... Your cousin kind of knew my cousin. We might so. be related. Yeah. Which is also kind of a joke because yeah. he was like, it's possible that my dad's not my dad mm. uh, and that you might be related somehow. But yeah, that whole exchange is, is funny and fascinating and like you said, mm. relates right back to what we've discussed. Yeah. What did um, you think of that relationship and like how, not what the point of it was, but kind of what the point of it was. 
I don't know really. I mean, he's he's a farmer, so he works with the land. I think probably deep down he doesn't want the country to become so modern and his fight might not be about climate change, mm. but he's certainly, I imagine, it's thinking... about land. Yeah, it's about keeping it as Iceland is, mm. which, you know, it's a big fight for everybody, not just for climate change, but it's a big deal about preserving Iceland as it is because it's not a big country and it has so many different amazing landscapes and vistas and just all that kind of natural geography that if you start building factories and pumping CO2 into the air or building dams is another thing that it's going to affect the nature of the country and probably not for the better might be economically helpful yeah. but not yeah not naturally I guess it's also like a an indicator that I guess would you class her as kind of middle class metropolitan? I guess so. I mean, she teaches a choir and she yeah, and she's she got owns kind of her trendy own little flat, in nice little flat ci- in the city. Yeah, but it it's quite a good kind of indicator that it's not just a fight. I know that this. I mean, this is relevant to say like in the UK where that's kind of one of the main criticisms that's been leveled against like Extinction Rebellion, isn't it? But this is saying that it's not just about like their middle classes doing their things it's also about like the working people it's a fight for everybody as well to be part of versus this evil government um suited elite what did you think about the portrayal of the kind of authority figures i mean the, it's not like the prime minister is fleshed out a huge deal no. he's like prime minister <laughs> cut out and paste prime minister played by um bjorn tours actually he's a I really like him. He's an actor a lot on telly. So if anyone's watched Cattler by now, which was amazing, and the Valhalla murders, he appears in both and is very, very good. But he doesn't have much to do here. He's basically just like, I am prime minister. I'm going to essentially just say the thing you think the government will say, Um, which is that they don't condone the sabotage and that it's really bad for the country. But I think at one point he says, but we will rise again. Iceland is back. I'm just like, come on. You haven't even been able to capture one person. <laughs> Despite having like drones, a SWAT team, like all these crazy guard dogs. Yeah. They really like pull out all the stops. Even get the CSI out. Well, I mean, we were discussing <laughs> this last series. They've got far more police in this film than we've ever seen. And far more effective police as well. They don't just knock on your doors and... No, I mean, they they do arrest the wrong guy three times. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Um, I did like, though, the, if we're talking about the evil authority, as mm. it were, the scene where they're in kind of an ancient meeting place. Yeah, so I was trying to figure out exactly where they were. And I think the, the Republic of Iceland minister, whatever he was called, played by Jón Gunnar, who used to be the mayor of Reykjavik, comedian... He's a good, wait, he's now a comedian and he used no, to be... he used to be a comedian. Okay. And then... I was I mean, thinking still, that would be a stranger transition from Mayor of Reykjavik to, to comedian. comedian. Yeah, he, might, he had a lot of stories to tell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, comedian on telly and things like that. And then after the crash in the early noughties, the banks and all that, he started the best party as a sort of backlash and satirical thing and then got into power for, for about four years or something. But... That's the guy who's doing all the talking anyway. So I just thought it was interesting that he'd popped up because yeah. he doesn't really do a lot. He kind of provides a bit of context. But I was trying to figure out where they were. And 
it's very obviously historically relevant. So if someone knows, just let us know. Because I'm pretty sure we should know that. And I yeah. couldn't figure it out. But it was, it was fun. It was a fun kind of juxtaposition, wasn't it? Because we didn't see them in um, like a boardroom. No. Which I think if you were just a boring, like um, two-bit director, you'd be like, put them in a grey boardroom. Yeah. But they were all in their suits, but in this incredible landscape again. And it's like this this sense that they're like surrounded by this incredible landscape but that's also what they're putting at risk i thought was quite good they were all kind of huddled together like some kind of goblin um (laughs) goblin horde yeah hidden folk Mm. (laughs) yeah no that's true and there was at that point there was a lot of i don't know whether they were jokes or what but about circularity and circles I know I'm not sure quite what any of it meant, but the Republic guys talking about how the Vikings met and they were effective when they discussed in circles, then they're in a circle themselves, mm. and then it cuts to the choir who's in a circle singing. And I was like, I'm not sure what that means. I'm sure we could read something into it. Yeah, mention of the choir. I was very pleased to see the return of Icelandic choirs. <laughs> yes! And this is one of the most joyous choirs, oh I think. Oh my God. So totally. joyous. Well, because at my own, I am in a choir, well, in theory, but my choir got disbanded because oh. of COVID. And so genuinely, when I see this choir sing, it brought real joy to me. And they're singing happy songs. Yeah. And which it's... we haven't really seen, I don't think. No, no, not really. Uh, uh, I mean, I, obviously, we don't know quite what they're singing in the films we've well, seen. I, well, I did know what they're singing in this film because I had the subtitles for oh. it. Did you? Uh, no. Something about spring? Yeah, sing, they were singing about the beauty of Iceland and God's um, gift to us is incredible um, nature and things. Mm. So, again, very on the nose. Yeah, but, but nicely serves done. its purpose. And just everything about when Hatler turns up to the choir and their reactions to her. And when she... Uh, we'll talk about Baldwin as the kind of, you know, corrupt yeah. official. But when they're discussing their things in the printing room... And she comes back and gets them to turn over their quiet, their, sh- their sheet music. Mm. And they're all so happy at what the song is. <laughs> like, genuinely just joy, joyous at, at, that they get to sing whatever that song is. Yeah. Uh, and then later on, when she tells them about the secret, which Balvin's quite concerned about, mm. but it's actually just Nika. And they're so happy for her. And then they start singing to her. Mm. Oh, it's just, oh, it's lovely. Þannig er Yeah, <laughs> 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 
Baldwin was such a little wet sam- damp sandwich, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> a damp sandwich? Yeah, but also he obviously has played quite a significant part in keeping her safe. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was needed, wasn't it? Because you need, again, the foil to like present the alternate options. His role in this was to say, to remind everyone of how dangerous it was and say yeah. that, yeah, yeah, you can run around the landscape, but just remember that you're going to get caught the photocopier might be spying on us and um, <laughs> you need to stop now. I think without that foil, we wouldn't really be like aware of the risks as much. Yeah, he was certainly there to to act as the kind of counterpoint. It's like yeah. this Because he's genuinely scared that if they if she gets caught, he gets caught uh, and it's all, bull, it's all shit for everyone there. I have to say, this would probably be my role in this, the one going... <laughs> Be a bit more cautious, please. So cautious that he was trying to find out if the photocopy was plugged into the internet. I thought that was just a little funny moment. So good. Yeah. It's like slightly, slight overreaction maybe. But I did like the phones going in the freezer. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit like, um, to a much lesser degree, Harrison Ford going into a fridge during the opening <laughs> of Indiana Jones 4, surviving a nuclear <laughs> yeah. bomb. Oh, that was preposterous. Completely. This I got, you know. Yeah. I don't know whether that would stop signals. Put it on airplane mode, put it in there, maybe. That is a thing in spy, that's like a trope in spy films, I think. I mean, it, yeah, I guess this film is riffing on all sorts of films and spy and action films are right up there. So yeah. If anybody's, you know, like on the dark web or whatever, can't confirm just to say that if you put it in the fridge, no one will know. I'm going to start putting mine in during these podcasts. <laughs> see if it works. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, but Baldwin, yeah, he's he's a bit of a bit of a wet blanket, but he does what he does, and he gets her to that point where she's like, right, well, I've only got one more thing to do. Just as the big news obviously comes in that she's been selected as a choice for a, a mother to a young Ukrainian girl, four-year-old Ukrainian girl called Nika, which is the film's com- sort of entire other plot. That again, it's a bit like bit like Under the Tree in where it comes in mm. and it's a much smaller part of the film but it's kind of just as important and it's that moment where she's like right well do I do I com- continue my life's work or what I've been aiming at which may have been a substitute for you know getting a daughter those years ago mm. or do I stop and not put at risk this chance to look after a girl whose family are all gone and she's all alone and somehow she's able to do the two of them at the same time. Yeah. Well, she's well, she's not, I guess, that it does all go wrong. Which I really liked. Mm. I like that she sort of got her comeuppance, but also got her... Yeah. I guess prize. it's all... It is kind of... It's weird, isn't it? Because it is kind of a subplot, but it all feeds into the same pot, as it were. That The whole point is that she's having, she's doing all this stuff and again the risk is higher and it's about like how dedicated are you to a mm. cause like is like the wider picture of fighting the climate crisis is that worth like a personal sacrifice or threat and i guess for her in this circumstance she believes it is but it's not it's not just personal is it because that girl yeah, it's it's all, I don't know how much that Nika knows prior to Hatler coming over, but if she's aware that there's a mother figure yeah. out there, then she's completely sort of putting her in a position of like. I guess Hatler's argument would be, 
you know, the people that are going to suffer in the climate crisis are the people who are children now. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, if she is doing something to prevent that, to tackle it now, she's helping Nika in her future yeah, life yeah, okay. in a different way. Yeah. But somehow she's able to help her in both ways. <laughs> yes. Which is... A very neat yeah. result. But thank God, because I needed a bit of feel-good well, yeah, We did need that ending, and we'll, we will come to that in a minute. But you were talking about how Hatler was determined. And so during that last... The final plan is to take out an entire pylon, which will... I don't, I don't see... I'm not 100% sure how that's much better than the first plan. I guess because when she takes out the thing at the start, the smelting place uh, runs on oil then, and it's much less efficient, and obviously it's worse for the environment and just really cost-ineffective for the company. So if she takes out a pylon, then that's going to take a long time to fix, mm. I guess. But the, the whole plan and the escape... It's just, I can't, I can't even imagine. I couldn't do any of that. No. I couldn't saw through metal cables holding a pylon up without, it looks like she's doing it. I don't know how much of that is like forced perspective or CGI. But if one of those cables, like, because she gets caught at one point on her hand. If one of those cables went the wrong way. You're dead. You're dead? Yeah. And it, uh, what? It's very, it's very like hardcore, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the escape, but the escape, yeah, when you're essentially like battling drones, mm-hmm. I just, I mean, I think you kind of just have to leave your reality check at the door a bit at this point well, and just go with it at this point. The fact that, you know, you can time it perfectly so that when a drone flies overhead, you can dunk down into the river and then pop up at the mm-hmm. exactly the right moment or hide and you know it it is too convenient it's it's a but magical realist tale exactly exactly it might be grounded in reality but it is very much beyond belief yeah. a lot of it and again in that final what's well, not final sequence but in that climactic sequence mm. again it, like you say it's nature that like saves her in every way so yeah. she hides in the river she hides under the dead sheep oh (laughs) the dead sheep useful in death even if it's not for meat yeah the sheep did make a reappearance yeah of course but only dead (laughs) and then it's almost like she gets tipped into the hot springs and she's like clinging on to the last of her energy and then they they're like hot springs like bring her back to life don't they They revitalize her she's like healed by nature which is very on brand just it does work perfectly mm. and and as a kind of advert for the Icelandic landscape and for people to just act against climate change it's perfect because you're like well why would you want any of this to disappear yeah. and I don't know the stats but the glaciers are fucking melting faster than they've ever melt, melted before if this keeps happening the country's gone yeah and that would be incredibly sad so you can understand Hattler going just, for it I just want to do a small shout out to my favorite piece of Icelandic nature that we saw which is when she takes when she knows you know the gig is up this is it 
she puts the picture of Nika into like oh. the world's biggest piece of moss. Yeah, well, I think that's the la- that's a lava field. So they're all the, the huge expanses of lava, and then the moss grows on top of it, or that's whatever incredible. it is. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I was I was like, I've never seen such great moss. It is cool. Yeah, it's very alien. You get off the plane in Reykjavik and drive down that road. In Keflavik and drive down the road to Reykjavik and the whole landscape, apart from the bloody smelting plant, <laughs> is like that. It's just yeah. mad. It's very alien. Um, but that moment is is very touching because she thinks the game's up. It's like, well, it sort of joining physically na- the two plots, I guess. Mm. The nature and the, the adoption and like hoping that yeah. one will help the other. And actually that moment where she gets arrested is the same thing. It's like bizarrely peaceful because again she like she gets forced onto the ground but her face is on that moss and that Mm -hmm. earth and that again is like bringing her strength and sucker yeah completely but i love that moment because you've got it you've got that exactly right but just prior to that you have the hilarious moment where the tourist gets arrested again. He was—is he just there for the comedy value? I think, well, he's he's there to enable her to do the thing she yeah. does. Yeah. Without him, they wouldn't even have a suspect. So she—he kind of buys her time, and I guess I, I'm not even sure he's got a name. But the unsuspecting Spa- tourist, yeah, unsuspecting Spanish tourist on a bike. Like, I wouldn't want to be... I mean, it, it's summer, I guess, so you can cycle everywhere. But just him and a bike, that's quite extreme. But he... I think he must be there as some sort of comment on how insular Iceland is and that kind of homogenised society. Mm. Well, at the end, when when that final arrest is happening and he's there, then he's... Doesn't he say something like, Really, dude? Like, again? Like, mm-hmm. um, and says something about, like, you racist guys like uh arresting me again yeah poor guy yeah i mean i've not had a bad experience like that when i've been in iceland Mm -hmm. but i I, that wouldn't happen hopefully there's no eco terrorism going on at the same time when you were there i mean well i kind of hope that there was in a way or eco warriorism yeah but yeah he's he's just a poor unfortunate soul who happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time but is also hilarious and that moment when he comes out he gets released from little and the, the guard is just like, you are free to go and welcome to Iceland. And you're just like, that's pretty funny. What a great, yeah. what a great introduction to this country. Not, not the kind of Iceland that I've been, uh, no. you know, loving so much. But uh, it was still hilarious. And then he doesn't even know where to go. He's like oh, in the middle of nowhere. poor dude. And that place is in the middle of nowhere. I remember accidentally... I took, you can't really go wrong when you're driving to places on Route 1 and somehow on the way to a glacier walk mm. took a wrong, wrong turn and ended up at the prison. <laughs> I was like, yeah, the prison's not on Route 1. And so, you know, I had to add like an extra 25 minutes onto my journey to re- reverse it and then carry on and it was very annoying. So you feel that guy's pain. He was on a bike as well, not in a car. Oh my God. You are free to go. And welcome to Iceland. Gracias, tonto. Hijo de la gran puta. Where is this? 
Is this Reykjavik? Oh, by the way, did you notice who the taxi driver was? No, but I, do you know what? I put a note um, down which said, surprisingly attractive taxi driver. Oh, really? Well, I just thought, you know, taxi drivers, you don't usually get such a saucy one, especially on TV. Well, actually in real life too. <laughs> have you ever had an attractive taxi driver? I can't say that I have. There you go. That I can remember. But you'll be pleased, or maybe not pleased, to find out that it was, in fact, Cleaner from 101 Reykjavik. Huh? Wait. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Yep. Hilmir Snar Gudnason. Is that... I'm going to have to go back and watch this now. I had to go back and watch it. I was like, really? Yep. Hey. Hey, yeah. Alltså <tryk> Oh, so he's been demoted to like real um, kind of cameo. Well, well, I don't know. I don't think so. He's been he has been in a lot of films. So no, you can't retract your statement about him being super attractive. He just grown up into a, a good looking chap. He got a job finally. Got a job as a taxi driver. Yeah, lost the glasses, dropped the weed, uh, and adopted a. Uh, you know, I mean, you could say he was a grass. I assume it was him who phoned the police. Yeah, it was him. It was him. Yeah. But I, my mind is blown. There you go. But you say, I mean, like we were saying, like he was only in a small part, but so was Solveig Arnestotir, who, like we said, was Magnea's mum. Like, people will just pop up because yeah. why not? It's work. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, I'm not, ju- I'm not judging. Mm. Fair play. There you go. Um, oh, and the other person I was going to mention. Did you recognise the lady at the adoption centre? No, do you know what? I'm usually so good at recognising people from films. The lady at the adoption centre. So you can remember the character? Yeah, though. I can yeah. remember the character. Okay, so... You can't think? Wait, okay, give me a clue. Um, sheep. Oh, that's no clue! <laughs> sheep are in everything! Sheep. Okay, was she in Rams? Yes. Was she the scientist in Rams? Yes. Oh, okay. This is Katrin, I think. It's quite um, a while since we watched that one. Yes, true. She's Katrin. She's played. She's her real name is Charlotte Boving, um, and yeah, she's obviously an actress in a lot of things. Also, spot the cameo this time round. Well, we, like I said last time, you're going to see people over and over again. So mm. we're almost at the full collective. <laughs> <laughs> But after that little sojourn into the uh, the world of Icelandic actors again, we follow Hatler to prison. Yeah, which was a real moment of despair, I guess. Because the inference is not just that she's in prison, but that she then has to give up any claim to adopt 
um, Nika. Yeah, which is, she wanted it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what? Life doesn't work like that. And I think I was sort of like, oh, shit. But, big but, why does she have a twin sister? Yes. Well, hmm. do you know what? First time her were introduced to her sister, I know that we're kind of cycling back around here, but I think yeah. it is important, that <laughs> I was like, wow, why have they made them? I know, obviously, they're played by the same actress, mm-hmm. actor. But quite often when you have one actor playing two people, so I'm thinking of like... um. The Prestige, I know they're not twins in that, but... Um, oh, Chris, is it Christian Bale? Well, I was thinking no. of um, Hugh Jackman. Oh, it's Hugh Jackman, of course. Playing yeah, yeah. two characters in that. Or other things where you have twins. The actor, like, goes, like, whole hog in being like, this is one twin who is like this. This is the other twin who I is am like a completely this. different person. Exactly. Yeah. They really, like, ham- hammer that home. And when we were introduced to, to Hatler's twin, it was like... Um, they were too similar. Like their mannerisms mm. weren't that differentiated. Um, I felt like just the fact that one of them had long hair. Obviously, they were kind of distinct characters, but um, which is probably a lot more realistic, to be honest, than twins being completely different, in identical twins. But I was like, oh, it's strange that they've made them so similar. Like mm. that's quite an odd kind of acting choice. And then obviously, at the end, it all comes well full circle, and it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I think, you know, it is it is one of those tropes. If someone's playing their own twin, there's probably a reason for it. Mm. Um, but I did read that Erlingson had considered finding real twins, which oh. would have made for an interesting choice. But after, I think he'd been he'd known Haldora since they were kids, but hadn't got to work with her as a direct, yeah. director, you know, in a main role. I think she pops up in The Forces of Men. But he just cycled back round and was like, no... You're I mean, I think it would have been a big compromise. I mean, unless there were some absolutely incredible twin actors <laughs> in Iceland, yeah. which probably knowing Iceland there are. But, um, I mean, one twin is so much more important than the other and really carries the whole film mm-hmm. that I think you'd be incredibly lucky to have identical twins up with that. Oh, completely. Good. Yeah. I think you're slightly wrong in saying one is more important than the other, completely more important than the other. Mm. Because if it wasn't for Alsa yeah. doing a completely kind of selfless thing, then mm. Hatler wouldn't be able to yeah. get to Ukraine. Do you know what? Again, I feel like when we've talked about it, a lot of the things have seemed quite on the nose, but somehow in this film they work. Like the music choices and things like that that we've discussed. And the twin... The twin swap is such a trope, isn't it? Mm. Like, it's a Shakespearean trope. It's oh, com- yeah, incredibly old. Um, and you're like, twin swap, really? But somehow <laughs> here, it works. Like, and you're really invested and you kind of go with it. I guess, again, I guess it's that magical realism thing, isn't it? Yeah, you. I, I think, and that's why the opening is so important, is because it makes puts you into the right mindset of like, mm. okay, well, this seems natural, but, you know, I'm going to suspend my disbelief to... A, a certain point yeah. and that kind of builds throughout the film yeah. to this kind of nadir where you're like I'm just fully accepting that no one will notice that some <laughs> twins have switched places in prison <laughs> you know it's not it's like the parent trap <laughs> yeah, it is exactly like the parent trap but you know what there were some twins in my school year that used to um, go to each other's classes oh really and the teachers never knew wow they really look that similar yeah i mean they were they were identical twins and they did look really, really similar 
So. I mean, you would if you could. But it's a very selfless thing because yeah. when the sisters have that conversation at the pool, Hatler basically says that what Alsa is doing is really selfish. Yeah. How are you going to help the world by looking inside? Mm. Which, you know, there are a lot of people out there that would, would agree with Alsa. But uh, you do have to also be active against it in the world. Yeah. Um, and so for Alsa to listen to her sister and realise that actually she can step up. Yeah. It's just really sweet. It's a real kind of like um, about turn, isn't it? Because I think she is shown as quite kind of egotistical and quite kind of um, self-involved really mm -hmm. earlier. Like it's kind of, you know, this portrayal of her as a yogi and um, a kind of chill out dude figure. It's done with like irony and it's done with self-awareness. So I think it is nice that she gets like that redemption and we know that she actually does have a good heart. It were. Yeah, I think to some degree it's set up in the first shot of her being introduced, Elsa, where they're all wide-eyed and pulling stupid faces. Like, mm. yeah, okay, that is kind of part of the practice, but also it is a funny moment. Mm. And yeah, that kind of helps you understand her character. Mm. But I also thought that the way they did the twin stuff was really clever. Like, there are moments where I was like, okay, so there's two of them. I doesn't. I'm not saying it took me out of the film at all because both performances were brilliant. But, you know, when on, especially on like cheaper TV things, like if someone's playing two characters, mm -hmm. they'll be sat next to each other and down the middle, you'd be like, okay, so that's the cut. That's where they've pieced the two shots together. So many moments in this film, like how did you mm. do that? Specifically when they're talking in the pool, in mm. when they're actually in the water, the, the sort of ripples of the water go all the way back to both their necks. And I was like, oh, maybe they've just managed to cut one of the characters mm. off at the neck but then they move around it's like i don't know how they did that but it's very yeah. clever and it's that thing that we've discussed before it's like the little uses of cgi almost i'm pretty much invisible yeah it's just it's yeah clever same just, with bringing the pylon down i think as well yeah that looks it's like just good. where it needs it and it aids the storytelling mm -hmm. and not anything kind of silly on top of that exactly yeah it works yeah works perfectly so then, yeah, Elsa switches places with Hattler. And I love the way she does that. She's like, she's not letting her talk. And she just essentially tells her what's going to happen in the sort of third person, uh, which is brilliant. Mm. And then that leaves Hattler free to drive off and go to Ukraine. Yeah. A very wet Ukraine. Yes. Well, I thought that that was very important, wasn't it? That last scene mm. of this whole thing that we've been discussing about saving the planet for the next generation that we see her kind of bringing these two streams together as it were because they get caught in a flood and she's carrying Nika across the flood mm. which felt like a very poignant metaphor of trying to help the next generation deal with the the climate crisis yeah. and what that's going to mean the mess that mm -hmm. we've all put them in very symbolic mm. and also the music is interesting there because the, the band aren't playing anymore. They're having to carry their instruments above the water. I mean, that scene generally, like everyone is getting wet, mm. very wet. But the Ukrainian singers, they're in full full vocal force. Well, I thought what I really liked about those kind of final scenes in Ukraine are, is that you get the combination of the umpar Icelandic band and mm. the Ukrainian singers yeah. kind of come together and make a more powerful force, which is really nice. And they blend pretty yeah, well they don't do, they yeah. i think because the music is kind of icelandic folky mm -hmm. with the accordion and the sousaphone and the drum 
various kinds of drums uh, and piano at whatever stage it is. But when they combine, it just yes, yeah. yeah, it works brilliantly. And you were saying before, it would be great if the soundtrack was available on Spotify or something. Come on, Spotify. Buck up your ideas. Yeah. I was really looking forward to having another listen to it, actually, because I love polyphonic singing, that Mm. Ukrainian style. Love it so much. So I was super pumped to go and listen to it before this, but it wasn't there. We'll find a way of getting it. Yeah. Um, And yeah, if anyone's listening and you can put it on record or digital do Send it. it to us in the post <laughs> <laughs> um no but that yeah the ending was brilliant how the music sort of changed and was fully just the folk singers the floods were very symbolic and the carrying and it just it ended perfectly she got both of the things she wanted and hopefully it left a sort of really positive impression oh see i it left me with a slightly different impression which was the kind of enormity of the challenge right of the climate crisis and that this is a thing that for generations is going to have to be like dealt with and like the only way to kind of deal with that is to you know carry everyone with you and help people through and give them love which is hopeful but i think it but also for me it gave me a slightly kind of ominous not ominous in a depressing way but ominous in a like okay we do need to think about this big challenge. Go home. Go home and think about it. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Which I get that. I thought was nice even. Because she hasn't solved the climate crisis, yeah. obviously. But thing, it's got it on the news. People are thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and she's given Nika a whole new life. Mm. Which is, yeah, which is very positive. Oh, what a sweet little girl as well. <laughs> yeah. She was nice. <laughs> she was lovely. So there, yeah, that's it. Great film. Great film. We loved it. Mm. Um. Any final thoughts? Any funny moments? Any any other moments you just like to touch on? Uh, just a final shout out to where she's uh, dressed in. She like breaks into that hotel. Oh yeah, in the cagoule <laughs> and, the, and the sunglasses and the and the um, face covering and throws all her manifestos out the window. And I thought, you know, in pre-COVID times, you'd look quite strange. She definitely stood out. But no one yeah. better no than I No one seemed bothered. Just, you know, sweating Reykjavik. you got to wrap up, <laughs> even when you're in the lift. But I did enjoy <laughs> that moment. Yeah, very good. I mean, there are a few other funny moments, I thought. Like, um, even just, for example, uh, Svein Bjorn calling his dog woman. Why? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Just for that one joke at the start. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to take them where you can. Yeah, completely. Although, I, I and also, the, I like the whole barking thing. He's like, woman, bark when 
when the helicopter lands and they, the police come and speak to him. And that's all that's doing is setting up the end when he distracting the other police from any noises that might occur from Hatler being in the sheep truck. But it's just it's just funny and very clever. Nice I thought. touch. Yeah. Oh yes, very important. You know when she steals the typewriter, which is a big moment uh-huh. prior to the Hotel Borg scene. Oh, don't say who did the typewriter play in a film <laughs> last season. <laughs> I'm not going to go that deep. Um, but that's, a, I mean, because that whole typewriter idea comes out of the idea she has to write a classic letter cutting up newspapers and mm-hmm. magazines and stuff. But I don't know whether you noticed what she was cutting up. Was it? It was the local newspapers, the national newspapers. Yeah. Morgan Blathith, Freiter Blathith. Shout out. Shout out to Freiter <laughs> Because we got featured in Freiter Blathith. I can't quite believe it. It's amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much to Toti, the journalist who got in touch. Uh, and let us have a whole page <laughs> yeah. dedicated to this podcast. Very generous. Very, very generous. generous and um, we're very grateful. And it was great to see our faces <laughs> on the internet next to a whole bunch of Icelandic writing and also in a real newspaper. Yeah. Who'd have thunk it for such a little, tiny little niche podcast? Start from the bottom, now we're here. In an <laughs> Icelandic newspaper. Yeah, did we really need to come back for series two? I think we made it, <laughs> didn't we? So, we've come back with a bang, mm. I would argue. Some may say a whimper. But where are we going from here? What's next? Well, it's been quite hard to choose... Uh, I've got my eye on a few films. Again, running the gamut from 2000 onwards. It's very easy to gravitate to the newest films. But we're not just going to cover new films. There are a couple from the early noughties which I'd like to look at. And uh, I don't really have any clues to give you other than we might cover a literary adaptation. Another one. Yeah. We might have a documentary coming Mm. up. And we might have yet another film that comments on very Icelandic things. So there will be sheep. I can neither confirm nor deny <laughs> there will be more sheep. Or horses, for that matter. We spoke about those at the end of last series. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. But hopefully we'll get to see a lot more of the same actors and actresses who we know and love. Plus a few new ones to get to know. So we'll just have to... You'll just have to... Hang on in there, and um, I will reveal next week's film when the time is right. <laughs> I love that ending. So mysterious. <laughs> well, I'll see you back here then. Nice one, thanks. It's always a pleasure, and glad to have you back, Ellie. Thanks, Rob. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now my whole team here. Started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the And you'll be pleased to hear that since we recorded that chat, I have in fact decided what the next film will be. So join us next week as we explore unknown territory and venture northwest to the eerie and remote towns of the West Fjords for Oscar Thor Axelsson's chilling adaptation of Irsa Sigurdardottir's best-selling novel, I Remember You. If you've been following us on the socials, you'll hopefully have seen this already, courtesy of BBC iPlayer. But if not, it can be rented or bought digitally on Apple TV, Amazon, or most other video-on-demand platforms. 
Until next time, come say hello on Twitter and Instagram, where we're at Kvikminderpod. And if you could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, that would really help others find us. See you next week. Tak bless. Thanks and goodbye. <laughs>